Yeah, there was an old song called Things That Make You Go Hmm. And if you've never heard it, it's so good. I mean, oh my goodness. I, I love old, the, the stuff that I grew up with. They're just good songs.、Uh, the lyrics were maybe a little shady, but nonetheless, the song was really good. But that's exactly what we're going to talk about in this episode. Because there are things that just kind of make you go, hmm. And that's what we're going to talk about, specifically two things. The first thing that we're going to focus on is a new release from the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force. Yep, that independent body that takes a look at a variety of different pieces of data and then makes their recommendations. Well, we're going to talk about one specifically that they released just yesterday on February the 27th. 2024 that has to do with obstetrics, specifically iron deficiency anemia, because that definitely will make you go, hmm. And I'm going to explain that in this episode. The second thing we're going to talk about is a publication from the college that came out as a clinical consensus bulletin number four in August of 2023. Right? That's the fall of last year, not, not long ago. And whether we should treat or not coagulase negative. Staff. I'm going to explain in this episode and, and how this came to be as a point of discussion from a checkout that I had from a resident just yesterday. That's how this is how this checkout went. Hey, Dr. Chapa, look, I got a patient. He's, she's here. Her first initial urine culture, she's、uh, had an asymptomatic bacteria greater than 100,000 with sensitivities, but it was coagulase negative staff. Now, here's a question Should we treat that or not? It's a complicated question with a complicated answer. So, before you rush to a quick one, like, oh, that's probably contaminant,、uh, hold on. Yes, but there's more to it than that. And we're going to explain in this episode. So, we got some fun stuff to talk about in this episode, specifically dealing with the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force and their stance on screening and treating iron deficiency anemia that will make you go, hmm. And the other thing from the college about. Not treating ASB with what is considered a normal vaginal flora contaminant. And I get that. I'm not arguing that with that at all. But coagulase negative staph at greater than 100,000 with sensitivities able to be identified may be a different picture. Hmm. See? Things that make you go, hmm. We're going to talk about all of that. It's good stuff in this episode. Here we go. That make you go, hmm. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Well, I think it's super important to know what different professional societies, organizations, what they have to say about a subject.、Uh, that's, it makes a great point of discussion. It makes us well rounded as clinicians, as academicians, as scientists, as healthcare providers. Just, we can't all, all, always be just here's what ACOG says or SMFM, those are good. But what does the Royal College say? What does Society of Obstetricians and Gynecology from Canada say? SOGC. What does uh, the uh, Professional Society from、uh, Australia and New Zealand have to say? People have different opinions, and, and that's okay to have those feed and mold our own set of opinions. That's totally fine. 
However, sometimes you read an opinion from a reputable source like the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force that was released on February the 27, 2024, and you just have to step back and go, huh? Uh, what are you talking about? What? I mean, at some point, you have to go, come on, man. I mean, you're killing me. You're killing me. So the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force yesterday made their their data review, and let me just give you the, the, the short answer of this, even though we're going to go through it in more detail, that, quote, there is not enough evidence to recommend iron supplementation during pregnancy, end quote. What? I mean, you're kidding me, right? I mean, this was almost like a satire headline. I was like, well, what's the punchline? You're kidding. No, they're not kidding. And not only did they say there's not enough evidence to recommend iron supplementation, they said there's there's limited evidence to screen for iron deficiency anemia. Um, yeah, I mean, let that let that rock your boat there for a minute. Let me let me read it to you exactly as I'm looking at the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force. And I've said this before. I, I have friends who sit on this. Said they're fantastic. They do a great job at what they do. But sometimes you you really have to say you're just you're killing me, bro. You're killing me. Quote, there is inadequate evidence to recommend for or against the use of iron supplements during pregnancy or screening pregnant women for iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia. End quote. I told you things that make you go. Hmm. Okay, so they gave it a letter designation of I, which is. Um, incomplete or insufficient data, okay? Uh, now, just to throw this out there, this is nothing new. They made this recommendation back in 2015 about screening for iron deficiency anemia. And I'm going to give you the ACOG stance now because, yeah, please screen for iron deficiency anemia. Damn. I mean, it, it's linked to some adverse issues. Now, I find this interesting that what this report looked at, now I'm going to read it to you right here, and what they said is up uh, that there's no increased risk of these factors. Uh, okay, that may be the case, but what about the other factors that ACOG says is tied to uh, is tied to iron deficiency anemia? Let me explain. So here's what the this body of people, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, said regarding certain uh, comorbid conditions, certain adverse events, rather that iron deficiency could cause, but there was insufficient evidence to prove. Okay, here it is. Prenatal iron supplementation resulted in no significant difference in rates of gestational diabetes, cesarean delivery, or maternal hemorrhage compared with placebo or no iron supplementation, nor did it improve maternal quality of life, end quote. All right, I get that. I dig it. I, I'm, I, I agree with that. I've got no beef with that. I would never give iron supplementation uh, to reduce the risk of of gestational diabetes. What? What does that have to do with it? And and I've never told a patient, uh, take your iron so that you can reduce your risk of maternal hemorrhage. Uh, no, you take your iron so you can reduce the risk of blood transfusion when you get acute blood loss anemia from your maternal hemorrhage. Do y'all get that? So I'm looking at this right here. Iron supplementation in pregnancy had no significant difference in rates of gestational diabetes, cesarean deliveries, or maternal hemorrhage. You don't say. I wasn't expecting it to have a difference to begin with. Is that weird or what? Come on, family. What did I tell you? Things that make you go, hmm. 
What are you talking about? <laughs> so weird, but let's relate this back to ACOG's practice bulletin number 233 that came out August 2021. You guessed it. It is called anemia in pregnancy. And in this, it, of course, advises us to screen for iron deficiency and reminds us that the, the number one way that people look for anemia is a CBC with indices. And that's okay. However, it can miss certain kinds of iron deficiency because you become iron deficient first and then it shows up in your indices. And I've covered this on past episodes. You got to go back to the archive because we talked about all of this. All right. So, yes, you can screen for uh, anemia in general using a CBC and look at indices. That's okay, but it can miss early kinds of iron deficiency because the best way to screen for iron deficiency is looking at serum ferritin. That has the highest sensitivity and the specificity for diagnosing iron deficiency in anemic patients using a ferritin level less than 30 micrograms per liter. Okay, that confirms iron deficiency anemia. Okay, so ACOG says, yes, we got to check this. Uh, it's a real deal. Now, I'll tell you what it has been linked to in terms of adverse outcomes, and it's not C-section, it's not maternal hemorrhage, and it's not GDM, which is why when when I read this from the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, I'm like, well, what about these things? It is linked to these, but you chose to look at something else. Knock yourself out. Hey, I love everyone. I'm not picking on anyone. I'm just making it plain, making it plain, okay? So iron deficiency anemia has been linked to certain adverse issues in pregnancy. There's no doubt, especially in lower socioeconomic patients that may have a poor diet uh, and don't have uh, iron uh, repletion either by dietary means uh, or because they don't go get prenatal vitamins or iron tablets or whatever, okay? So ACOG right now, before I tell you the adverse issues that it's linked to, ACOG does state, quote, all pregnant women should be screened for anemia with a complete blood count in the first trimester and then again at 24 to 28 weeks and patients who meet criteria for anemia based on hematocrit levels less than 33% in the first and third trimester and less than 32% in the second trimester should be evaluated to determine the cause. And of course, as the most common cause is iron deficiency, then you can uh, look at indices and ideally get serum Ferritin. We've covered this many, many times in past episodes. So not only does ACOG say to screen for it, it says to to uh, give supplementation for it, as does the CDC. And you can start out using a traditional low-dose supplementation because if you go super high-dose, remember you can block uh, transferrin and it's an inverse relationship between the more iron that you take orally, the less absorption you get in the GI tract. So the best way to take iron uh, orally is every other day. We've talked about this in, in other episodes. Uh, make sure that it's in an acidic environment, not with a base. Like don't take your iron tablets with milk because it's going to be a binder. Uh, and typically it's like uh, 27 milligrams as a QOD every other day administration or supplementation should be okay. All right. So now that we've laid that out, let me tell you what ACOG says has been linked to iron deficiency anemia. I am looking at ACOG's document right now. And remember, this came out uh, in August of 2021. It is practice bulletin number 233. And I'm reading it verbatim. Iron deficiency anemia during pregnancy has been associated with an increased risk of low birth weight, preterm delivery. We know the state that we're at with that joker. 
and perinatal mortality and should be treated with iron supplementation in addition to prenatal vitamins. How about that? Oh, uh, as another side, uh, it was Monday. I was in our prenatal clinic, and the patient said, "Oh, I'm only I can only take gummies for vitamins. I can only take gummies." Uh, huh? Uh, no, you can't. If you can swallow food, you can take a vitamin pill. You can do it. It's all psychological. It's all psychological. Unless you've got some kind of uh, esophagus uh, motility disorder, trust me, you can do a vitamin. Plus, guess how much iron are in gummies? Zero, because <laughs> by definition, uh, if you had iron in it, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't be a gummy. It would cease to gummify because you cannot put iron in any measurable quantity uh, that's going to make a difference in a gummy. It's got to be uh, it's got to be a, a, a tablet, okay, uh, a pill. So that's the catch. So yes, iron deficiency is linked to low birth weight, preterm delivery, and perinatal mortality. However, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force said, hey, don't worry, it's not linked to GDM. It's not linked to increased risk of hemorrhage or C-section. Never did I think it was to begin with, but thank you for that info. So let's take a quick pause here, because if you're thinking, all right, dude, you are way too worked up about this. (laughs) And I am. But here's the, the potential consequences of this. Thankfully, it hasn't happened uh, back it didn't happen in 2015, and I doubt it's going to happen now. But what I don't want is potentially for some insurance company to go. Wait a minute, you you want me to to preauthorize an iron transfusion for this pregnant patient? Mm-mm, I'm not doing that. U.S. Preventive Service Task Force says you shouldn't even be looking for that, and iron supplementation is not helpful. So denied. Do y'all get that? Now, we're, that's never been an issue, but but I, if you if you take a look at things that could happen, that's why things like this this statement from the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force is not only uh, not really helpful, not only does it go against what ACOG says to do, um, but potentially it could be a roadblock to reimbursement, getting something authorized so that patients don't have to pay for it. I mean, let their insurance pay for it. Last thing I want to do is have a patient receive a bill um, for iron transfusion because she's so anemic. I'm trying to keep her out of harm's way. Does that make sense? So that's why I am worked up about it. Um, it, And it's just people get confused by this. So even though the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force says, I'm going to give it an insufficient letter I or incomplete data, uh, great, thank you. Nobody else thinks that. CDC disagrees with you. ACOG, SMFM, most international societies in uh, that have to do with pregnancy say, my goodness, correct iron deficiency anemia. Because here's the simple solution, guys. Here's our take-home message and here's our formula on our podcast that we've used over and over again. You all know this, right? It's not shared decision-making in this case because it is medical guidance, <laughs> but it is a low-risk, high-benefit, high-yield therapy. I mean, my goodness, taking every other day uh, iron outside of occasional burp back, a little bit of constipation, it can help prevent low birth weight, preterm birth uh, as the main issues here. And we know that preterm birth uh, we're already in a hole with that. We're not doing good with that. So preterm birth, low birth weight, and overall perinatal mortality, those are the things, the three things that can be uh, reduced or positively impacted with supplemental uh, iron, according to ACOG. I like how the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force uh, states in their little report here, it says, this recommendation is only for those without signs or symptoms of iron deficiency. Um... What are the reproducible signs or symptoms of iron deficiency? I mean, seriously, if you come in with visible signs or symptoms of iron deficiency, then you're really iron deficient. That's why you screen everybody. You do universal screening. You don't just look for those with signs or symptoms. What, fatigue, 
headache. That's called pregnancy. I mean, dizziness, uh, orthostasis much. I mean, they're super nonspecific. So what are the signs or symptoms of, of anemia? I mean, that's why you check everybody, as we should, as ACOG says to do. So again, guys, what's the topic here? What's our title of this episode? Things that make you go, hmm. And uh, look, I'm not I'm not trying to take away. It's a lot of work. I, I, I'm telling you, to do what they do, and they look at all the data, and they have countless zooms, and uh, and come together and draft this. It's it's thankless work, obviously, because then you get people like me poking a stick at it. Um, but this one is just jacked, man. I mean, come on, let's let's be honest. And and I feel bad because it's not like they're making boohoo's of money doing this, right? This is typically this is a volunteer panel. How about that? So these these poor folks, uh, you know, they come together. Like, I'll volunteer. I'll do my time uh, as they're independent. They are considered experts in their field across disciplines, and they look at reports and uh, and then bleh, and then and then cough up an answer, right? A furball of recommendation. And sometimes it's right on, and sometimes uh, you get this. Now, again, thankful for them. Thank you for what you do, Preventive Service Task Force. But you're the same folks that said mammograms can begin probably at age 50. Oh, hell no. No. And that's what ACOG said even back when that came out. Um, we're not doing that. We're As women's healthcare providers, we're going to do 40 and then do, you know, every other year. I'll give you that much. And then annually at 50. Um but you can do starting at age 40 every one to two years. But we're not going to say you start at 50. And they took a lot of heat for that uh, when the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force said that. So they got a different way of looking at things. Okay, They're talking about they're looking at this at an epidemiological model, not as an individual uh, person, as a person in, in, in your clinic uh, who you try and take care of. Does that make sense? So anyway, U.S. Preventive Service Task Force. Got to love them. Okay, I think I'm done poking the bear. Uh, let's walk away from the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force. And now let's move to uh, August 2023 for ACOG's clinical care consensus, uh, which was number four. Okay, so this is clinical consensus number four, urinary tract infections in pregnant individuals. All right. Fine. He, here's where I, I want to get into. Now, remember in the intro, we said I had to check out yesterday. Divya uh, gave me a call and said, hey, I just want to let you know. I'm going to let her go. But her urine culture had greater than 100,000 coagulase negative staph. Uh, do I need to treat that? Now, what do you think when I hear coagulase negative staph? What do you think about? You think oh, it's likely a contaminant, right? However, it was greater than 100,000. Uh, and they were able enough to pull sensitivities. Now, you and I have seen urine cultures, of course, where it says, oh, you know, up about 10,000 or less than 10,000 um, uh, flora uh, consistent with typical vaginal flora and or contaminant. And they don't give you sensitivities. They don't quantify. It's just, nah, there's some bacteria in there. They look non-pathogenic. Leave it alone. However, in this case, it was greater than 100,000. It was coagulase negative staph, and they were able to run sensitivities. So this was a question. Hey, do I need to treat that or not? Do y'all get this confusion, right? On the one hand, we don't want to treat a patient with antibiotics for nothing. But on the other hand, we don't want to potentially, even though this is controversial also, uh, increase the risk of ascending infection 
uh, and PILO. Now, in this uh, clinical guideline, clinical care guideline, uh, it's interesting because we all learned that, right? Oh, the whole reason we look for ASB specifically in the first visit or in the first trimester, if they come in at that time, is because due to the changes of pregnancy, both anatomical and functional, that ASB could become symptomatic, aka a UTI, and then it could go up to the kidney and give pilo. And pilo, we know, of course, uh, is linked to morbidity, including ARDS. However, even in this clinical uh, care consensus, it says, you know, a lot of that data that said that ASB leads to pilo is probably outdated and probably overestimated that risk. So let me read this directly because I know that's that's a whopper and, and it's not going to change what we do. And I'm going to explain in a minute. But yeah, it's probably we probably threw ASB under the bus more than it should. Um, and we still should still look for it. There's no question. But its whole association with PILO is a little gray. Let me read it exactly as ACOG states it. Quote, screening for ASB has become accepted clinical practice to prevent PILO in pregnancy. However, the studies supporting ASB screening were mostly performed in the 60s and 70s, and study quality was poor, and the antibiotic treatment regimens did not reflect contemporary practice. Since ASB screening and treatment became routine, it is true that the incidence of pilo in pregnancy has decreased by uh, around 20 to 35 percent, down to 1 to 4 percent. Although this reduction supports the assertion that ASB screening and treatment are effective, here it is, guys, the two most recent randomized trials of ASB treatment show only a 2.2 to 2.4% pyelonephritis rate in the group of patients receiving no treatment for ASB. This suggests that, at least in some populations, this is what ACOG is saying, the contemporary baseline rate of pylo is lower than what we previously thought. All right? In other words, uh, some of those early studies were probably outdated. They were kind of crappy design. And yes, ASB without a doubt can lead to pilo, but the reduction that we attribute to treating ASB is probably less than we than we thought. But we're still going to do it. Okay, so here's what ACOG says. Quote, because published trials have demonstrated a consistent association with a decrease in pilo screening for and treatment of ASB in pregnancy is still recommended. Okay, so uh, uh, again, I'm absolutely not saying not to look for ASB at all. No, no one questions that except maybe the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force because they decrease their recommendation from solid evidence letter or A or grade A to their most recent review, which they give it a, a grade B uh, looking for ASB which was evidence of, yeah, some moderate benefits. So they peddled it back a little bit, right? But at least it's still on the yes, look for it side. Uh, unlike the iron side, which they totally trash on the other side, saying that there's insufficient evidence, okay? So should we be looking for ASB? Absolutely. Does, it, does treatment of ASB greatly reduce the rate of pilo? Probably less than we thought. So that's, again, the little controversial thing. That's why we stay updated because... We tell patients, treat this so it doesn't get worse. That's fine. That's not lying to them. But the the risk is probably less than we initially uh, uh, thought. Okay. Now, back to our issue here. This patient in our practice had that initial urine culture that grew out greater than 100,000 coagulase negative staph. Now, you and I typically hear that as, oh, probably staph epi. It's probably a contaminant. 
And that's totally right. But here's where the things that make you go, hmm, come in. Because in ACOG's clinical care uh, consensus, it states, as I'm looking at it right here, quote, normal vulvovaginal flora should not be treated, including lactobacilli, corny bacteria, and coagulase negative staph, end quote. Notice, they didn't give this any kind of, of bacterial uh, count quantification, okay? Like, remember for GBS, for, if you find GBS in the urine on an ASB culture, you don't have to treat that if there are lower counts than 100,000, okay? Assuming that they're not symptomatic. If they're symptomatic, then you should treat them. That's a UTI. But if you find GBS on a urine, that is lower than 100,000 CFUs per ml, ACOG says, quote, lower colony counts may represent contamination and do not require treatment. However, of course, they're still called a carrier of GBS, so you don't have to swab them for culture at 36 weeks later on, okay? But if you find GBS on your ASB culture that is greater than 100,000, then you not only have to treat them at that time, you also would uh, treat them intrapartum and avoid the swab at 36 weeks. Does that make sense? So it has to do with qual- with, with the count of, of the colony, which I find interesting because they, they say if you have GBS uh, and on your ASB specimen, but it's less than 100,000, you do not have to treat that. Only if it's greater than 100,000. And I'm looking at it right here. Lower colony counts do not require treatment, but should be noted as an indication for group B strep prophylaxis at the time of delivery. Fine. But it would have been helpful if after that statement of coagulase negative staff, if they would have given that a colony, a, a colony count quantification. And here's why. What's the most common bacteria that causes UTI in pregnant patients, pregnant women? It's E. coli. What is the second? Second is typically, based on who you read, either Klebsiella or Staph saprophyticus. Staph saprophyticus is coagulase negative staph. Do y'all get that? So, yes, I get that. Coagulase negative staph could be staph epi. Um, but at a greater than 100,000, if you're able to isolate one bacterium and you're able to run sensitivities, why wouldn't you treat her? That's ASB. Staph saprophyticus uh, is the, the second most common kind of pathogen that causes symptomatic UTI after E. coli. Do you all see that? So according to this, um, this clinical care consensus, number four, urinary tract infections in pregnant individuals from August 2023, they're like, hey, don't worry, it's coagulase negative staph. You don't have to treat that on the urine. That's if they're asymptomatic. If they're symptomatic, that's different. But in this case, we're talking about, as in, in our uh, patient example, an asymptomatic patient. So would you treat coagulase negative staph? ACOG right here says you don't have to treat that. However, the qualifier would be it would have been better to know what is the colony count because that greater than 100,000, if you're able to self-isolate one and run sensitivities, I'm going to treat that, you bet, as ASB. Things that make you go, hmm. Everybody pretty much agrees that E. coli is like the number one on the list, right? Anywhere from 70 to 80%. It's that run of the race for the second position, third position, and fourth 
where these other bacteria all kind of hover. Okay, they're all kind of this grouping. And depend on depending on who you read, they either put Klebsiella as next, as number two, or Proteus. Enterobacter is in there. And then GBS and Staph saprophyticus both hover at around 2 to 3% of ASB cases. All right, so it's out there. So E. coli is number one, then Klebsiella, Proteus, Enterobacter, Staph saprophyticus. And that's the one that I'm talking about here that is responsible for UTI cases uh, and in some cases even pilo. So and this is the confusion is it's very clearly stated in August 2023 you don't treat coagulase negative staff but are you not going to treat something that's greater than 100,000 on a pathogen that we know causes symptomatic UTI in pregnancy and you're able to run sensitivities why would you not treat that so i really wish i think i'm we'll, we'll take that back to the ob obstetrical care consensus the problem is this just came out so the, the time is going to be revised it's going to be a little while um, but it really would have been helpful to say you don't have to treat coagulase negative staph unless uh, it's uh, it's able to be singled out. You have greater than 100,000 and you can run sensitivities because that makes sense, right? If it just gets this kind of hogposh result of, oh, it's just, you know, 10,000 uh, various bacteria compatible with vaginal contamination or vaginal flora, that's obviously a contaminant. So yes, coagulase negative staph could be in that pool as a contaminant. But at greater than 100,000, remember guys, low risk of treatment, high potential yield and benefit, which is potentially prevention of pilo. We just don't know to what degree that prevention is uh, and prevention of symptomatic discomfort with the UTI. So I'm all for that. If you're able to identify it and run sensitivities, coagulase negative staph, I'm going to treat that. There's a nice review on the likely offenders of UTI in pregnancy that was published back in 2015 in Urology Clinics of North America. The title is Urinary Tract Infection and Bacteria in Pregnancy. The first author is Glacier. I'll put this um, this reference on our uh, reference list. But it's, it's, I mean, none of this is mind-blowing. We know this already. Uh, all to say that Staph saprophyticus, which is coagulase negative, indeed is a potential pathogen it's not as aggressive as others it's less virulent but we can't discard that as oh it's always a contaminant especially at greater than a hundred thousand and with that note let's go ahead and bring this home All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered two things that make you go, hmm. Here's how it started, just an example of how another brother can trample, ruin your life, sleep with your wife, watch your behind. There was a friend of mine named Jay, would come over late at night and say, hey, I watched your fight, I thought it was all right. Well, we've covered two things, U.S. Preventive Service Task Force and ACOG's UTI in pregnant individuals. Just things that make you go, hmm, and make you think about it. As always, we hope you had a good time with this episode. We enjoy putting this together. We get ideas for the program based on our real-world clinical experiences and things that we pick up in print. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. Things that make you go, hmm.